Bullshit. Let's pretend for a moment we've entered a parallel universe, free of bullshit and full of bold solutions. That's what no bullshit marketing is all about. I'm your host, Dave Mastovich, and let's cut the bullshit. No one sets out to be a bullshit marketer, yet it happens a lot, even at the movies, specifically with the trailers shown before the movie. I went to the movies last weekend to take in the whole experience, expensive tickets and concessions, annoying people talking during the movie, fear of having to walk in front of people if I went to the bathroom. But you know what bugged me the most? Those ridiculously long movie trailers. I get that from a marketing standpoint, the studios have an opportunity to reach their key target market, people who go to the movies, when that target market has no choice but to watch. But come on, man. I timed the trailers. I know I'm a little weird, and we'll talk more about how good it is to be weird. But each one was around two and a half minutes. Total airtime of all the previews was more than 20 minutes. Seriously, 20 minutes of scenes from soon-to-be-released movies that played prior to the movie we came to see. And many previews show the money shot and spoil the ending or deliberately give the perception of another storyline. That's taking advantage of the target audience. It's BS marketing and no better than telemarketers bugging us at all hours or direct mail pieces packing our mailbox. Marketing other movies to us is part of the game and could be good business. But 20 minutes of previews leads to movie fatigue. We become agitated before the movie even starts. What could the studios do to reach a key target audience without taking advantage of the situation? Number one, simplify the message. Good storytellers make the point quickly. The preview should whet our appetite and leave us wanting more. Make them shorter. Less is more. 20 plus minutes of previews is absurd. Pick five or six trailers and move on to the movie we came to see. Trying to reach every target market by showing so many trailers is the equivalent of watching 10 minutes of TV commercials in a row. Ain't gonna happen. What's the big idea? Give us an understanding of the main theme without giving it all away in the preview. Going to the movies has been in decline for years because of other viewing and entertainment options. The studios need to make the experience better, not worse. Cut the BS by cutting the previews. Our guest today is John Poutier, CEO of the Greater Pittsburgh Automobile Dealers Association. John's the author of three books, an international speaker, and the former president of the Pittsburgh chapter of the National Speakers Association, among many other achievements. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell us about your career and how you came to where you are today, John. Well, it's been 30 years to overnight success, and I spent the first part of my career in the Fortune 100 corporate world in human resources. And then after grad school, just got tired of the BS, to be real honest with you, and started my own business, uh, consulting, speaking, training. And it was called First Step, which meant the first step to real change. And that lasted about 25 years of living out of a suitcase and chasing the next gig every week. And uh, it was great. And uh, then I got a little burned out. I got a little older. I got married and happily married, actually wanted to be home for a change. And uh, a new opportunity fell into my lap about five years ago as the CEO of the Greater Pittsburgh Auto Dealers. So it's been a, a good ride, rough ride at times, uh, but uh, it's, that's how I got where I am. And now I'm practicing what I used to preach about organizational change and culture and, and performance, and uh, it actually works. 
Well, John, I want to touch on a couple of things about the career background. Can you talk just a little more about the Fortune 100 company so that you worked for, what you did? And I think that'll probably segue into our first question anyway, because there was probably some BS there. Well, and that's what motivated me to leave. Uh, I called it creative dissatisfaction. And rather than sit and bitch and moan about it, do something about it, change it. Uh, but policies and procedures and re redundant reports and the structure and the bureaucracy, other than that, it was great. Uh, but that, you know, that was, in fact, it was worse back in the 70s and 80s. You know, it was very much of a, a militaristic post-World War II culture where it's top-down bureaucracy, hierarchy, uh, and I'm just not cut out for that. Uh, so if you, you know, if you can't get along where you are, then you find a better alternative. And it was, it was a better move for me anyway. Uh, but yeah, there was a lot of, of frustration working in the corporate world, uh, but I learned a lot. And had I not spent that 10 or 15 years in, in that corporate world, I wouldn't have gotten the training that I got and the education that I got. So I don't regret it, but I certainly couldn't spend my whole career there. I think that happens to a lot of us that end up on the entrepreneurial side is we learn so much when we're at those big places. You learn what not to do, and you also do learn a, a lot about what to do because they aren't all bad. There's right. a number of good policies and things that they do, but there's just so much stifling of mm -hmm. creativity. Exactly. If you had to pick some BS from back then, what's the top two or three BS things you saw? Well, BS kept me in business because that's what I came in to fix. Uh, and I go back to the policy thing. In, in my first book, Get Weird, I talk about the word policy is rooted in the root word polis, P-O-L-I-S, which is also the same word as police. And I think the more policies you have, the less trust there is in the organization. And it's harder for people to perform and be creative when they're shackled by policies and procedures and structure. And it's just you, you don't need that many policies, and you can shorten them up. One of the example is dress code. You know, some companies have this ungodly uh, long dress code policy, and you can't figure out what the hell to wear. And my dress code at, our, at my building is four words, dress for the day. You know, if you're going to be meeting with a client that is, is a buttoned-up client, get buttoned up. If you're going to be cleaning out the storeroom, get in your jeans and your flip-flops. Dress for the day. That's all it's about. So you can take a lot of these complicated concepts that are confusing and shackling and th throw them out the window. And your more creative organizations don't even know how to spell policy. And, and they're better organizations. And if someone is, is out of step or out of bounds, deal with them one-on-one. -on -one. You know, it's an exception, not the rule. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to a lot of times, and I used to use this phrase when I was with the big corporations, I would say, let's just have a common sense approach. And I got pushback a lot, but a common sense approach can really do it. Talking to someone one-on-one -on -one can kind of do it. It's not common anymore. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You, John referenced one of his books that we're going to talk about throughout the show, Get Weird. I have a signed copy from many moons ago when it first came out. I've read it. I've written about it. I've attributed it. I've linked to it. And it'll be in the show notes. But we're going to get on to that a little bit later. So let's talk about a learning experience, John, when maybe you actually were a BS person and that you might have been a BS marketer or a tough employee or maybe your communication wasn't what it needed to be. Looking back, when do you think you might have been guilty of BS? Well, I was a difficult employee, especially when I was in the corporate world early on. Plus, when you're young, you really don't know what you don't know. Uh, and everybody thinks they're better than they are when they're starting out. And I was a difficult employee. But when I look backwards, I also had a lot to offer. And in the second book, Weirdos in the Workplace, I talk about 
creative, high-performing individuals can be difficult to manage because they don't want to be managed and they don't have to be managed. If you hired the right person, let them go. Give them the goal. And don't tell them how to get there as long as it's not illegal, immoral, or unethical. And I was, I was very difficult. I've tested the limits many times. Uh, I remember we used to have a weekly report, what I accomplished this week, a monthly report, what I accomplished this month, a quarterly report, and an annual report. And all you're doing is writing the same damn thing four times, six times, eight times. So one time, and I knew nobody was reading it, so I just made a, lot, a, a mockery of it. I said, if you're reading this, good for you, but you already read it last week and, and tested it and nothing happened. And then my boss did read it. And he called me and he said, what did you do this for? I said, well, did anybody read it? He goes, I did. I said, anybody else? And he said, well, I haven't heard anything. I said, I made my point. They're stupid. They're a waste of my time. They're a waste of productivity. Nobody's reading them. I don't have a problem with a report, but why do it weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually? And then they got rid of the, the weekly reports, and then they got rid of me. So Interesting. So I've done some of those same things, and I can just picture that boss sitting down with you. That had to be a comical meeting. <laughs> it wasn't comical. His head turned red as a beat. And, and he goes, well, what if my boss reads this? I said, well, let's see if he does. And he didn't. So, Hello. You know, and I multiply it. We have 36,000 employees in this company. Multiply the amount of time they're writing those reports and do the math. What's it costing you for something nobody's reading? Mm -hmm. The th one point that I want to talk about a little bit is the whole weirdos in the workplace and get weird and the creativity and the managing of those people. For young people coming up, I want them to hear this because I have the scars to prove it. I always thought I just didn't fit in. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what's wrong with me? Because I had ideas and I would question things and I would get yelled at. I would get kind of sent back to my Labeled. office. <laughs> and it's hard on your self-esteem when you're young, as you mentioned. Talk mm -hmm. about how someone might deal with that. Well, well, the, you don't. You just you learn how to, to uh, adapt to the moment. You can still be who you are, but maybe not so blatantly. Uh, you kind of choose your battles. Uh -huh. And I mean, there's two common characteristics of all successful people. I mean, there's more than that, but there are two that are common. One is that they know themselves very well. They know their strengths and their weaknesses. Uh -huh. And number two, they can adapt to different people, different situations. Uh -huh. So you put your game face on when you're in a staff meeting or a board meeting or whatever it is, and you just play the game while you have to play the game. So you got to know where your moment and your time and your audience, and, and you, sometimes you have to pretend you're somebody else for the moment. That's true in any job. I mean, you can't always just be totally uncensored and unfiltered, uh, but then apply it where it matters. And what I, we have a thing in the book called the weird-worth ratio. The more you're worth, the more you can be weird. And if you look at people who are really high performers, they're eccentrics, they're creatives, they're wacky, they look funky. But if they're high performing and they're adding to the bottom line, so what? So what? If nobody's you know, dealing, having to deal with them anyway. So the higher you're worth, the higher, the higher you're worth, the more you can be weird. So make yourself so valuable that you're almost indispensable. Talking with John Poutier, the CEO of the Greater Pittsburgh Auto Dealers Association, and also the author of a number of books. And I want to stay on this path for a minute because having the book, and we're going to get this on the show notes, Michelle, uh, our producer, is going to make sure we get this diagram on the show notes. But you and I talked about a diagram yesterday as we were prepping, and I remember reading it. I know they can't see the diagram as we're talking about it, but I think that diagram is pretty relevant about how the three pieces have to overflow and, and, and peak. Throughout your career, you should be looking at these three things because you don't, you'll never end up where you thought you did or going to. And every job you have, you can learn something about yourself. 
And what you need to do is to aim for the intersection of your abilities, your interests, and the market. Think of three circles overlapping in the middle. And the more your abilities are, the bigger that target becomes. The more your interests are, the bigger that target becomes. The more the market is for that, the bigger the target is. So you want to do what you'd really do well, what you'd love to do, and what you can get paid for. There are a lot of things I love and I'm good at, but nobody's going to pay me for it. We won't get into that. Uh, <laughs> I, I have the same, same but problem. But when you're missing any one of those three, it's really a job. It's not a passion. So that's the key. And it's it, and all throughout your career as you're – you should document those things as you're, as you're going through your career. What did I really love about this job? Even though I hated this employer, there was something I loved about the job. Maybe it was the autonomy or it was the, you know, whatever it is. You've got to write that down. It will repeat itself over and over because that's your strength and that's your interest. And, and once you find that, then you say, how can I integrate those two things into a job? Mm-hmm. And it is important because I just had a conversation with uh, a young 25-year-old guy that's a uh, passionist basketball coaching, played Division One, and we were just brainstorming because he got an offer, and one of his offers, he was going to probably have to leave his full-time job, which isn't coaching, to go and coach for a college team, whereas when he was coaching high school, he could do that and keep his full-time job. And I had this conversation without drawing the diagram for him, but I said, you know, you're talented at this and you love it, but right now it's not going to be able to pay the bills, mm-hmm. so since you're 25... You might be able to ride that out and see where it goes the next two or three years, but why don't you go back and say, hey, I can do this, but I can't leave my other job. Do you still want me? And mm-hmm. sure enough, they still wanted him. Exactly. So he got lucky. But you have to make those decisions throughout your life. Um, we were both talking before the call when you went to get your MBA, some of the talent challenges you had. I left a high-paying job to go uh, work for a university and get my MBA. You, ha- you have to make that decision on the abilities, interests, and what the market will bear. Exactly. So it makes a lot of sense. So let's segue into something that I think you do really well and watched you do it with the books and now the Auto Dealers Association is marketing. So I like to give my definition of marketing because it's evolved over the years, but I really have stayed core to the first step being clearly defining. The first step. The first step. Look at this. (laughs) We're working together. You're clearly defining your target markets, finding out what they want by doing marketing intel and asking them, developing it if you don't already have it or tweaking it to meet what they want, giving it to them when and where they want it at a price they're willing to pay, and then telling them about it again and again. But unfortunately, most people get hung up on that last part, the telling, and they think that's marketing. And it's not. It's just the fun, glamorous part. But if you don't do all that front-end stuff, if you don't clearly define the target audience, if you don't ask them what they want and then tweak it so you give them what they want, when and where they want it, at a price they're willing to pay, telling them about it can then be the fun part if you do all that. So... With that definition of marketing, think back to your most amazing moment in your experience with marketing or messaging. What's your biggest marketing or messaging success? Writing the first book, uh, it's, as you know, very difficult, especially if you have to work too. Uh, I ended up writing it at 3 o'clock in the morning, which is when my brain spurts come to me. I wish it was some other time, but I wake up at 3 in the morning to this day with ideas and thoughts, and I write them down. But the first book was my breakthrough in terms of being able to elevate my speaking career because when you're a speaker or a trainer or a consultant, if you have a book for some reason, it adds to your credibility. And uh, it was a tough road to get it published by a major publisher, but uh, it was well worth it because the second book, because the first book did well, the second book was bought without question. Uh, And it's better than a calling card. And it also forced me to bring my thoughts together for me. And to realize my weirdness is, is a good thing. 
and that it's it's what makes you what makes you different makes you better and makes you you know excel and uh, so that probably was the most important breakthrough for me and it, I was not really marketing per se but once it was done it certainly was so talk about when you were developing the idea for the book and then started to write it who did you write it for who was the target audience of the book the status quo world <laughs> I, I wrote it uh, during the dot-com 90s initially and when the war for talent as they were calling it you just can't get good people and all this stuff and it really it's it's not it's, it's the employers who don't get out of the box and don't recognize that you can't keep doing the th ways things where you always always did them before so I really was writing it to shake up the status quo which I've been doing all my life and that's really if you wanted to put a one sentence tagline on what I did it's shaking up the status quo and uh, so yeah I wrote it for unfortunately I probably wrote it for people who will never read it because if they pick up a book that says get weird oh well that just sounds weird as opposed to you know I could have given it a generic how to create a high performance culture well that sounds like the corporate name it would have mm -hmm. and, and, and boring people would pick it up and so I had to kind of force feed it to people who normally wouldn't pick up a book that says weirdos in the workplace as opposed to managing diversity. Okay. I mean, you got to have a hook. You got to have an angle. You got to have verbiage that, that isn't the same as everybody else. And that's probably my, my trademark. So let's go to uh, with First Step and the book. So you, you're doing First Step for years, having some success, and you then get the book. Talk about how you marketed the book to get you more business. Oh, <laughs> I did a lot of what I think creative things. My mother, actually, at the time, uh, I had her calling all the Barnes and Noble, ma major metropolitan Barnes and Noble bookstores around November and saying she wanted to buy 100 books for her staff for Christmas. And they didn't have 100 books. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> and so she says, well, I'll just go to a different bookstore. This is before you could get them to get books so readily online. And so I was doing that kind of thing. I also was doing uh, uh, creative marketing, but that was what I think of all the things I did, that was probably one of the biggest coups because all of a sudden they'd go to the, look how many they had of Get Weird, for example. They say, we only have three. And they go, we need more of these. And so I got the bookstores to order more of my books just by making those phone calls. And I, it was, you know, it was just simple, simple uh -huh. idea. Now, who was your target audience for First Step? For who, my company? Yeah, who were the biggest clients and how did you land? Well, it's ironic. Ones? I was going to go after the big corporations because they needed the most. But again, it's one of those you can't preach, you know, preach into the choir. Uh, I, was, I ended up working mostly for automotive clients, believe it or not. My very, one of my very first clients was Saturn GM when they were breaking off the separate car company that had a different culture. And I worked for them before they even broke ground and before anybody knew there was going to be a Saturn. And that kind of got me started in the organizational change and behavior in the automotive sector. So I ended up doing a lot of automotive consulting, uh, performance improvement, customer satisfaction. Uh, it really ran the gamut. I mean, I, I did a lot of work for just about every sector there is, but it ended up being the majority of automotive clients, and they really need the help. Mm -hmm. They are really, you know, they, they're not early adopters. Mm -hmm. I agree. So with... Uh our company at Mass Solutions, the biggest thing that we tell clients is we start off with the question, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? And we say, because when it comes to messaging, that client needs to define their why, their reason for being, 
but also their customers' why. Why does that customer buy from them? Mm -hmm. And then you crystallize that into one big idea or a memorable message or theme that makes an emotional impact on that target audience. So whether you want to do this for you or when you wrote the book or First Step or the Auto Dealer Association, how would you answer that question if I said, what's the big idea? Wow, that's a hard one. Uh, wow. When you say what's the big idea, are you talking about marketing or are you talking about... What's the, what's the reason for being and their reason for buying? So at Mass Solutions, ours really is bold solutions without the BS. Because mm -hmm. if you're a company, we're similar to yours on the HR side, if you're a company that is structured and formal and is worried about all those policies and so forth, we're not for you. We're going to come in and we're going to challenge you and we're not an ad agency or a PR firm. We're not. We're mm -hmm. a marketing firm that finds solutions. So if somebody wants a commodity, don't buy us. So that's very similar to what I was in First Step. I used to tell people, don't hire me if you don't want me to tell you the truth. And you know, a consultant is someone who comes, you know, usually you can find the answer with your own employees. They'll tell you, but they're afraid. So I used to tell them that a consultant is someone who comes in and borrows your watch to tell you what time it is and then keeps your watch. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's... It really is true. I mean, I've done a lot of employee surveys, and, and the employer is just shocked at what I find out. And I said, well, you could have asked these questions. There's a reason they didn't tell you. It's the culture. So that's where you start. And uh, very similar. Was, was, uh, I, 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 there were clients that I didn't have, shouldn't have had, I should say. Mm -hmm. uh, one automotive client in particular got rather upset with me on a conference call one day because I was telling them, they were telling me how I should do my job and in ways that weren't going to work in terms of the, the pilot selection and all this stuff. And I finally said, let me ask you a question. When you go to the dentist, do you tell them how to drill your teeth? When you go to your tax accountant, do you tell them how to do your taxes? No, you tell them you just don't want to pay any and you don't want to go to jail. Just, and I said, you hired me for a reason. You must assume I know something you don't know. So why don't you find out what that is? And they said, uh, we're going to caucus. And they put me on hold. <laughs> <laughs> but it is true. Why hire an expert in a certain area of expertise and then tell them how to do it? Then do it yourself. Exactly. You don't need me. You're wasting your money and you're wasting my time. My pet peeve is legal and accounting finance. Those consultants people don't argue with. Right. They don't ever doubt them, but they'll question us. We have designers who are trained eight, ten years of schooling plus 20 years experience. And they'll say, I don't like the blue. And that wasn't just arbitrarily selected. Mm -hmm. the, there's an art and science to what we do. And with the messaging, they'll challenge, ah, change these two words, add three sentences. The billboard, the billboard <laughs> rule is seven words or less. They'll say, that three exactly. words. Exactly. And you say, well, would you tell your finance accounting tax person was just exactly just out of zero yeah exactly <laughs> out of zero yeah it's just it's just absolutely crazy thanks for joining us for no bullshit marketing visit boldsolutionsnobs.com for show notes plus additional marketing and messaging resources sign up for light reading you'll receive valuable strategies every other week to improve your marketing and transform your messaging it's really light intended to be read in two minutes or less and it just might trigger bright ideas for you. To sign up, go to MassSolutions.biz, B-I-Z. Remember, ask yourself, what's the big idea? And build your story around the answer. It's all about bold solutions without the BS.